0: Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: But I think leadership is about setting the right example and understanding what it takes to get the best out of the people around you. And ultimately, for me, being a leader was never about my individual performance or me as a whole. It was always about how we can make the team win, how we can get the best out of the team, what was the best for the team. And that's the way I sort of
0: approached it. Big thank you for tuning in today. We've got our guest, James Horwell, Cambridge MBA, and former Australian rugby player coming up with some great insights over the next 30 to 40 minutes. Before we dive into the episode though, we have to say a massive thank you to Gurjet and Timco and everyone over at Skill Yoga for sponsoring today's show. Skill Yoga is a personal digital yoga coach. It's available on the App Store and the Play Store. And it has hundreds of workouts on functional strength, mobility, flexibility and mindfulness. You won't regret checking it out. We've had the pleasure of using it over the past few months. And we can attest to the high quality videos, to the excellent workouts that it provides. So please do check it out at skill-yoga.com or download the app today.
2: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today, we spoke with James Horwell, former professional rugby player and captain for Australia, an MBA in Cambridge University. James is a former Queensland Red, Harlequin and Wallaby. He played for the Australian national side with 61 caps to his name. He captained the Wallabies many times including during the 2011 Rugby World Cup. He led at the highest level of such a demanding sport. has taken that energy into completing an executive mba at the university of cambridge judge business school and the automotive sector back in australia today we spoke about family work ethic and the cultural comparisons between europe and brisbane australia it was interesting to hear why james transitioned from afl to rugby as he got older in school and his ethos around leadership setting the example getting the best out of people how we can make a team better. James educated us on commercialization, private equity and investment in sport, and mainly rugby, which holds onto tradition and amateur linkages, a part of his MBA. He discussed what it can do for sport positively and negatively, and what the future holds in this fascinating space. James Horwell, thank you very much for joining Kieran and I today, and good evening to you over in Brisbane. How's life treating you?
1: Yeah, life's good. Thank you. Um, yeah, back oh, back here in Oz. So I've been back in Australia from the UK now uh, for about three, four months. So I got back in May, so uh, end of May. So yeah, look, it's been nice to be home. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it was twenty four degrees today and sunny, and it's meant to be winter, so it's not life's not too bad um, in terms of the weather. And yeah, look, life is is good. Just um, had uh, yeah, my second baby girl was born about seven weeks ago. So. You know, on the in the newborn sort of bubble grind, as uh, as I'm sure some of the, your listeners or yourself would know, when the when the when the baby comes out, it's uh, it's always a a bit of a tough patch. But no, really enjoying it being home and uh, yeah, uh, enjoying being uh, yeah with a new baby in in the family.
0: Huge congratulations first from the both of us.
1: Thank you very much. It's very kind.
0: How have you settled in? What's been the biggest difference to Brisbane since you last been there?
1: I think. Brisbane, I don't know how many of your listeners know. Brisbane sort of was always a, a bit of a big country town. It, it sort of grows, but it's become much more cosmopolitan. I guess since I've left, it's become a bit of a a foodie hub. It's sort of, uh, I mean, as I'm, I think the weather um, in Brisbane has sort of enticed a lot of um, the southerners, so guys from Sydney or Melbourne, to come up um to Brisbane or, or the surrounding area. So it's uh it's certainly developed a lot. It's become a, a real hub for 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 Australia and, and I guess for the world. And you know it's it's exciting time in Brisbane. We've um we've just been obviously awarded the Olympics for twenty thirty two. Um and so there's a lot of infrastructure already being built uh in the city. So it's exciting to see that grow and yeah, but other than that it's been nice to be reconnecting with some family and um not just immediate family but extended family that are most that live around here in Brisbane or in the surrounding areas so that's been a nice part particularly for my kids Uh, they get to see their cousins and and spend some time with them which uh, they were sort of missed out a little bit on by living in the UK.
2: And you're saying you had your first daughter um, I presume in in England what's it like do you think culturally now you know moving back to Oz and the differences between the continents and the countries?
1: Look, I think from culture, there's, there's there's obviously a lot of similarities, but I think a, a big thing, particularly uh, for my oldest daughter, she's very active, and I think just the outdoor lifestyle that is here in Oz, which is obviously helped by, particularly Brisbane, which is obviously helped by the weather. As I said, it's um, it was 24 degrees today and sunny, blue skies with, um, you know, and we're towards the back end of winter so it's sort of it's sort of tough to when you've been in the uk and thinking about sort of january february time you know what the weather's like in the back end of winter over there so that's probably the biggest difference immediately for my um for my family um but other than that i think culturally there are some some slight differences, but I think overall we're we're sort of pretty much the, very similar uh, within the uk particularly around around children and I think it's um yeah I guess there's a, just a bit more open space here and our we're quite a big country and everyone's got a bit more space to to move around than than I guess you do in, in some of the more uh developed parts of the uk
0: going back through, again our notes for the episode, your career has been amazing done on two continents, done it for different teams, capped in different teams. Did you always want to be a rugby player or was that something that naturally progressed when you were growing up?
1: So for, for, probably the honest answer is no. I, um, I, I never played rugby until I went to like a, a, pro, a what we call here a private school um, where rugby was a sport. But I grew up um, playing AFL, so Australian Rules Football, so similar to, I guess, Gaelic for you guys. Um, so I and, and sort of... That was what I was brought up playing, and that was my my sport, and probably still to this day is my family's and even my extended family's preferred sport to watch. Um, and so, I guess I grew up playing that, and, and then. But as I went to a private school, and, and my body shape at the time as a kid, I was quite a you know probably a bit big to play AFL. My body shape suited rugby, and I became, you know, I just started playing both really. So I used to play rugby on a Saturday and AFL on a Sunday on the weekends. And then just uh, gradually, rugby started to take over as the mateship and the, as it, as you sort of became progressed through school. And it probably wasn't till I finished school and I got sort of selected into a into the Reds Academy or the Reds. Yeah, they used to call it the Reds College, but the Reds Academy essentially out just the, my first year out of school was sort of where I was like, okay, I could actually um, try and make it as a professional. Probably, I don't think I really thought about it much before then, to be honest.
2: And if you're moving forward, do you ever have a moment in time, maybe, when you think back, well, I I played over a decade, 15 years at the highest level. I've captained my country, played against a lot of amazing teams, played with a lot of remarkable players. Do you ever kind of think back to that point in time when you transitioned into rugby then started playing it get into the red setup what must be that feel like when you're reflecting back onto a career that has been extremely successful
1: yeah i mean it's a it's a strange one i I think you you don't you sort of touch on you don't really reflect on those sort of things particularly while you're playing it's sort of everything's happening so fast and i think my dad continues to remind me um so i I never I, i didn't want to play rugby as a kid and um I was almost forced, not forced. That's the wrong word. But you know, I was probably pushed quite firmly to play as a as a kid. I remember sitting in the car park at at a, at a rugby club here in Brisbane, crying when I was uh, ten years old or eleven years old, not wanting to go to rugby training because I, I wanted to go play with my AFL friends, and sort of was you know gently or coerced by my parents, particularly my dad, to go and play. And you know, if that? I guess there's an element of me that sort of thinks that if that didn't that sort of push from uh, from someone that sort of was always like, no, this you trust me, you'll like this eventually. You'll like it. You're gonna you're gonna really enjoy it. You know, coming from a guy that never has never played a game of rugby in his life. I don't think he's even picked up a rugby ball. Um, you know, it was quite you know when you think back of it, it you know, it, it's funny how the world works in that sense. And I guess reflecting on it, it's uh, it, you know, it it was a, an amazing journey. I'm very lucky to be able to have played. As long as I have really, and for, for, you know, with as many people and, and, and experience some amazing things and be part of some amazing teams and be part of some, some down teams. But ultimately, I've been, uh, I just feel I'm very, was very lucky to be able to have an experience in a career that I did, you know, throughout the time that I did. And it's, um, something that I, I will forever hold dear to my heart. It was something, some of my fondest memories of my life have been involved there around rugby. And I, I owe a lot to the game and to the people that I played with.
0: And then you mentioned luck being one of the reasons, but it clearly takes a lot of strong values and maybe things like work ethic and resilience and determination in order to get to the level that you got to. Do you reflectively look at your values or do you have self-identified values that you live by?
1: Um, I've always been someone that, you know, I, I was never as a player and probably even as a person, I never feel that I was the, the best at everything or the, the most skillful you know I, I always wanted to be the guy that worked hard and I, you know I think that was the, the way it reflected in I played or trained it was sort of I committed myself 110% to it and didn't sort of allow for any other distractions it was sort of like I'm either all in or I'm all out there was sort of no middle ground for me in the way I prepared and the way I trained particularly for rugby and, it, and it's a little bit like that outside of it but predominantly the work ethic thing was for me and work, working hard is just it's a non-negotiable in what you do it sort of doesn't matter how skillful or whatever or what you know how much talent you have the the work ethic and the hard work was the thing that was you know meant the most to me and I didn't want to you know people can always you know sometimes used to think back and people could say what I like about my you know, my skill and my ability and my talent that really didn't bother me that much but if someone told me that I didn't work hard that really used to get to me and so it was sort of like a thing that I didn't want ever to be known as someone that never worked hard. To me, that's the that was the, the cornerstone that sort of set up my. I feel it probably gave me the the, the
2: cornerstone that set up my career. And what was very much on the cornerstones of your career, James, is leadership. I mean, you've captained teams. Leadership has an attribute. How would you feel your your style was? What would you say about your? characteristics as a leader what made you be successful in that space
1: yeah I mean it's an interesting one I think the hard work part is, is certainly a part of it um, and I, I think that can be quite infectious in terms of you know, not just rugby but in, in sport and in, in business and in, in in the world that it becomes it can be an infectious thing that people see working hard and they want to they want to work so you've got to set that a good example I think and look I, I think it was something that being a, a leader a captain I used to enjoy the responsibility uh, i think that's not not everyone would probably say that some people would probably even you know some of the best uh, and the most successful captains in the world might might sort of think that they didn't probably embrace the the responsibility that's involved with it but i think leadership is about setting the right example and understanding what it takes to get the best out of the people around you and ultimately for me being a leader of a rugby team was was never about my individual performance or me as a whole it was always about how we can make the team win how, the, how we get the best out of the team what was the best for the team it was never and that's the way i sort of approached it and, and you know that can add a lot more then you're thinking about a, a lot of a lot of other things other than what's being sort of done in your own individual performance so i, I think overall leadership for me is about Allowing the people around you to perform at the best of their ability, and and trying to encourage them to do so without with a, with I guess setting an example that allows them to do that, but also giving them the the space and the the leverage to be themselves and not try and be a someone that I guess not someone that they're not, but you know. And I think that I learned that over over my time being a captain.
0: One thing you've mentioned earlier was the work ethic and non negotiable, being a non negotiable. And then you've said. That you're trying to get the best out of people around you. Sometimes that may call for critique or asking people to do better or, you know, identifying areas where people just aren't putting in that work. How do you communicate that when you're outside of the dressing room, when it's not a rugby player and it's not a professional athlete? How do you do that with people in your life and business or in your family?
1: Um. Yeah. Look. I mean, that, that is a little bit difficult. I. I. I'm not difficult. I mean, it, it is a little bit different. I think from a a rugby, you know, and a sporting sense, it's it's interesting that you look at it. And I think that as a as an athlete, you can you can be quite direct, and particularly in the rugby, and and, it, and it's sort of encouraged to be quite direct. But also something I always thought of that you know I wanted to be beyond reproach, and you know if you're asking someone to do something to you know push themselves physically or mentally to get to a spot they can't come back to you and go why aren't you doing it and so that was always something to me and I think that's a little bit more difficult to quantify outside of a sporting sense in and in a rugby sense it's probably quite measurable it's quite tangible you can see what it is it's you know we I need you to push yourself for 10 minutes and, it, and it, you can see it on the clock you can see where you know it, it's quite glaring because everything's filmed everything's available everything's viewable you know sometimes in in the business world, it's you know it is again actual about what people output, but you don't you won't really know probably to a point whether that's the the most that they've pushed themselves or the hardest they've worked to get to that output, and I, and I think that's a that's a challenge, and it's a challenge being in a in a outside a professional sporting environment, and it's a challenge that you know you don't. I guess people don't think the same way or haven't had the background, but but also on on, onto that, it's not everyone needs to be like that, and that's why I guess professional athletes, you know, there's not millions and millions of them around the world. It's it's a fairly short, small number that get to the very, very top of their sport. So it's about understanding and and understanding what drives other people outside of things that you expected them to drive, and trying to work and, and touch of those points um to get the best out of it.
2: A huge objective for the show is obviously to link different spaces and, and build a curiosity and learning from different worlds. And what have you taken from the world of professional rugby and then brought into, you know, your your transitioning period into a career in, you know, in the automotive industry and also executive MBA with Cambridge Business School?
1: Yeah, look I I think first and foremost, you know, one thing that rugby is it's a people business, you know. Sport is a, pe- you know, particularly team sport is a, is a people business. It's it's about understanding the people around you, and that that equates to business as well, or 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 study, or, or however you're working, because it's about understanding the people that are in your team, the people that are across from you, the people that you are working next to, your competitors, and it's understanding them as a, as a person and how you can get the most out of them, or or get the most out of yourself to get the best out of them. So I think. That's quite a, an easy and tangible way to look at the way you do things. So, you know, it's certainly a, a reflection from a, from a rugby point of view that, you know, I, I learned along the way that it's about understanding the people around you, you know, what their background is, where they come from, what, they, what drives them, what makes them feel better, how they, how they approach things and that not everyone's the same and not everyone's like you and not everyone, um, Views the world in, in in the way that you view the world, so I think that's certainly part of it. I, you know, obviously, I think the hard work to me is always, as I said, has been a non-negotiable. Whether that's rugby or life outside of it, it's about doing the work uh, and preparing yourself as best as possible. So I, I think they're probably the two big thing two big things in terms of moving across. And and look, I think working as a team. Um, and working with people, you know, rugby, I think, is one of the great team sports out there because realistically, you know, that no matter how good a player you have on your team, you know, without the the sum of the parts, you're never going to be successful. While there's, you know, there's a lot of team sports out there that, you know, some that, you know, if you've still got the best player in the world that plays basketball, you're probably going to win more games than you're going to lose. Whereas if you've got the best rugby player in the world and then everyone around you is not at that level or not pulling the same way, it's going to be the other way. You're never going to win a game like that. So I think that's a really unique but great thing about, about rugby as a sport.
2: We'd, we'd love to dig into um, your Cambridge MBA in that piece. When I We were looking at the LinkedIn thread. <laughs> Has it been published? Waiting for grading. How's that all going? But private equity investment in sport, it's uh, – we were talking about Gaelic sports and when investment has come in, it's made a difference to Limerick Hurling, to German football. We've talked about the Premier League football. I, you're not, you don't have to give away the heart of it, but the ramifications of that in terms of corporate world ethos and sport must have been a very interesting journey of learning. We'd love you to unpack that a little bit and as to why that was the piece you decided to dig into.
1: Yeah, look, it was, um, it was really interesting, um, and it still is interesting to, to this day. I think, look, I, I, um, as part of your, my MBA at Cambridge, you do a, like a research project or a dissertation. I mean, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's like a thesis, a a sort of a modified thesis that's not as, as big as a sort of a PhD thesis, but it's a, it's a, it's a decent chunk of work. And, uh, you, you basically had free reign to choose and pick and how you wanted to do it and when you did it. So, i um I obviously did mine on private equity investments in sport um you know I think the main reason that probably brought that out was probably the 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 latest uptick in it particularly in the sport obviously that I'm from from rugby there's been uh, a lot of noise. And a lot of movement from private equity, from big private equity in, in that sport, with you know, particularly in the northern hemisphere, with CBC investing, obviously in the Six Nations, the Premiership, the Pro 14, which is now the Rugby United Cup, or I think it's called now. I think they've had a had a name name change or a rebrand. So, and then there's obviously you know reports about uh, Silver Lake investing in New Zealand rugby. Um, there's reports around a couple of big firms. Uh, sniffing around Australian rugby, CVC's looking to invest in South African rugby. So there, there's a lot of movement there. So I think going back to your, your main question, uh, commercialisation in sport is something that's been going for a long time. If you look at rugby as a as a sport, it, it's very immature in its life cycle in terms of professionalism. They only came professional 25 years ago. And if you compare that to, say, a sport like football or soccer, in the UK, I mean, it's been professional since, this I think, of the 60s or 70s where they were playing players then. So when you look at the maturity of that sport in terms of professionalism, understanding what players want and what they need, and I'm not sort of saying that, that you know, if rugby waits another 30 years, it's going to be getting salaries that what footballers are now like very well could, but in terms it's still in a quite an infancy stage and it still holds on to its... One thing about rugby, it holds onto its traditions very tightly because they, you know, a lot of people believe that that's what sets it apart from other sports, that it's traditions. It's got these amateur linkages, particularly in the Northern hemisphere. Uh, I found by playing over there that, you know, there's a, there's a strong linkage to the, to the amateur game that they, that people don't want to let go, but they also, you know, the rate, the rising wage prices, the, the cost that players can earn now means that there's a, there's a commercialization needed. So I think overall, I think there's a number of reasons why private equity is coming. Now, whether it's good or bad for for team sports like rugby is yet to be seen. And I think that's the the things that make people nervous. If you look at private equity as a traditional, if you just said you went to someone, oh, we're going to look at private equity, the very generic, this is sort of, you know, I've never worked in private equity, but if you went to someone and asked them about it, sort of they come in, they cut costs. They drive up. It, they drive uh, productivity up as fast as they can, get it to a, a value that gives it a good multiple, and then sell it off for a profit. So essentially, it's sort of rip the guts out of it, do what they can to make a profit, get the cost, cost down, the price of the profits up, and leave it. And they're not really too concerned what happens in the long term. As long as they get out with a, with an earn, they can pay back their investors, and then they will take, take money on the way and move on to the next one. Now that's a very bastardized, simpleized version of private equity. And probably anyone that works in private equity might get a bit angry with me, but that's sort of it. Whereas so when you, when you, when you look at it from that sense point of view and go to someone that say, let's, I don't know, you could use a Gaelic term, a Gaelic team in Ireland. So like the Dublin Gaelic football team passion. And that, you know, I've been in, I've been in Dublin when Gaelic football's on. I, I see what it means to the, to the people of Ireland and, and to the, of to that region. So if you, Went to them and said, "Well, these guys are going to come and give us a load of money, but they're going to throw away everything. They think they're going to throw away everything that you know you you love dearly about the club, just so they can make a profit. Because it's not what you like. You're going to have a lot of really upset people. And I think you sort of saw that with the Super League um, in the in the UK and Europe when they when they tried to do the breakaway Super League. It was sort of a you know a real not saying that private equity was had anything to do that it was probably a real wake up to." To what is possible if you don't do it right. So I think there's a lot of nervousness and a lot of negativity around um, what could happen with private equity investment in sports. But it's sort of you've got to weigh that up with the well, everyone wants to keep growing, everyone wants to get more money, everyone wants to get paid more, the wages are going up, what they're paying players is going up, what you're paying what people are expecting is 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 going up. So something you need to work something out to to get the get the idea of what's happening. And then you look at it on the other side in say the US, the, the these brands that these teams, you know, for example, you know, the American teams, so the NBA teams now allowing private equity investment purely because their values are so high. That basically, there's only the, the pot of people that could actually afford to buy a team. Now that their values are so, you know, in the billions, that they're like, well, that pot, that pot of people that we can could possibly buy our our team is diminishing rapidly because it's growing so big. So we need to work out other ways we can get investment into the game so that the the growth will keep going. So it, it's a really interesting space. And as I said, I I don't want to bore your listeners with it, but it, it's it. I think it's here to stay, and I think it, we're going to see a lot more of it over the over the short term, particularly after the COVID pandemic and the and the strain that that has put on a number of sports and a number of teams.
0: And fundraising and money coming into sport is so important for the lifeblood of each. Looking at say rugby, and you're looking at the proper funnels for getting that money in, be it hosting events, or fundraising, or support. You're looking at the Bledsoe Cup, has a few issues recently about hosting it, but then also you're involved with the Rugby World Cup for 2027 in Australia. If these organic sort of funnels exist, how important is that not just for the financial input, but also for the people of Australia to host the Rugby World Cup and have that event on their soil?
1: Well, I think the biggest, you know, I, as much as, you know, hosting a Rugby World Cup would be great for the people of Australia and it's a big event and obviously you know Aussies were you know a bit like the Irish we get right behind anything that's on our soil so you know we're quite we're quite passionate about that and if it was here you I think you'd see packed out games we'd like hosting you know we're we're quite a, a welcoming bunch um and we like to get people coming out coming over so I think that's a obviously a huge part of it but I think the biggest impact that can have for Australia is the impact on the grassroots the impact on a new generation of players that might watch you know what hopefully would be an Australian team be very successful at that world cup and go you know what I want to play rugby uh, and i think whereas for australia it's a it's quite unique for for those that don't know. i mean we we are in a very probably the most competitive professional sporting landscape of anywhere in the world in terms of population to number of professional sporting teams, number of professional sporting codes. You know, we're only 25 million people, so it's not a lot of people. We currently have three full-time professional fully contact sporting codes that play at the same time on the same fields and the same weekends um, for the same TV dollars for the same sponsorship dollars, for the same, and then ultimately for the same hearts and minds of the children and the kids that are coming through at the grassroots level. So I think ultimately the biggest impact that hosting an event like a Rugby World Cup can have for for, for Aussies is the impact on the increase of participation at a, at a grassroots level of rugby, the interest in rugby of kids wanting to go and watch, and play, and pick up a pick up a rugby ball, and choose to play rugby over. Football, rugby league, AFL, uh, cricket, you know, that's the, that's the benefit for us. And I think that's a, you know, there's obviously the economic part of it, the big money, a lot of hopefully we have a bit more normal times where people can travel very freely, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that the tourism dollars is is huge, but I think ultimately for us in a a rugby sense, it's, um, it's around how we can impact the, the next generation of, of hopeful rugby stars
2: would love to tap into passion purpose identity a little bit it comes through these conversations james and 15 years with an oval ball let a slow cup rugby world cup moving forward grassroots what about embarking into you know a different world and kind of what are you learning and enjoying about working in the automotive sector would love to hear about that
1: yeah course. i mean you learn you learn new stuff every day you know i think you touch on it it's um when you're a professional athlete, you're obviously very lucky to do what you do. But there's obviously an element that you know when you, you know, I tried to upskill yourself as much as possible throughout your throughout your career. But you know, that, as a lot of people say, there's no there's no substitute to, to actually doing it and, and sitting down and 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 you know being in the saddle and, and understanding what you know the nuances of business are like, and, and then going through and dealing with different people and different customers. So look, I'm I'm uh, I'm enjoying it. I think it's there's some challenges that you, that you have throughout your time as a business and you know you don't There's some challenges in terms of what you miss from from a rugby and professional sport point of view the 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 camaraderie the you know in a weird way the intense pressure of the of a daily of the of the competition The you know in a weird sort of way the being in pain meaning you know to me that showed that i worked hard you you do miss those things but i think from a for me um as I'm working in in a in a completely different industry, I think it's it's a little bit unique for mine as as the industry. You know, I work in the automotive industry or the automotive accessories industry, but um, there's a, another element to the to the business is that it, it's a family business. So you know, I, I work not only you know that, that was set up by my my father, my grandfather, and and my my uncle or my dad yeah you know, my dad's brother and so there there's a there's a family element which adds another complexity to to the way that the business works. you know it's a, obviously a fantastic thing that we're able to to do, but it also adds a complexity and a unique challenge at times of working with people that are close to you, not only you know direct family but cousins and and, and other element parts of the family where it's sort of so that that's been a challenge in itself but a but an enjoyable one that's for sure.
0: We've obviously had a huge challenge over the last two years with the pandemic, hopefully we're coming out the other side of it. Just for someone who's been through huge challenges on the pitch, off the pitch, just getting through and pushing to the other side in terms of overcoming adversity. If you had to give a bit of advice or a tip to someone on what to do when they're facing that challenge or outside their comfort zone, what would it be or what would you describe as the most important piece of advice someone could have?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting one. I think for me, it's about setting yourself little goals that are achievable to give yourself that um, that sense of you know accomplishment or achievement. Um, you know, obviously, there's a there's always an end goal, and, and it's it's important to have that in sight. But it's you know setting yourself little ones to sort of get to that end goal. I, I found was important. I unfortunately during my rugby career had a number of quite significant long term injuries where I spent a lot of time rehabbing. Um, you know, very, very extensive sort of times in rehab and to be able to get through that. Obviously that the, the end goal was always to get back playing, but it was sort of, you know, even little goals like walking again, you know, being able to, you know, or even breaking it down, being able to have a shower, stand up in the shower on your own without having to, you know, use a, cr- these sort of things, being able to set your goals, doing like standing up and down from the bed 10 times without, without wobbling, these sort of things you know it gives you a sense of accomplishment and so i think that's you know that's probably the advice i I'd, I'd give is, is set yourself little micro goals even and even if, even if they're small and you know think that they're they're silly or 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 you know sort of very basic in a in a term they, the sense of achievement and accomplishment that you can sort of tick off the box and go yeah i've completed that what's the next one and it gives you that momentum and once you get that momentum going it's very
2: hard to stop James, we're curious as to you're you're a competitive animal, right? You've always uh, probably <laughs> fed off that. What's what's next? What's the big thing on the horizon for you that's fueling that?
1: Um, good question. Um, yeah, look, I, I you know, I, I want to be successful in everything that I do, and I, and I don't. I probably haven't sort of had a. A chance to sort of sit down and really map out exactly what's next. We've had a lot of moving parts of sort of, I mean, this year we've decided to move home with a heavily pregnant wife, have a baby, uh, start a new job, start a new role, uh, buy a new, buy a house. I mean, there's been a lot of moving parts in the last sort of three, four months. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a bit of more normality back. I think is the first and foremost thing, getting settled and then being able to sort of target what I want to do. And, you know, I'm, I've no doubt I'll I'll end up probably signing up to some sort of you know challenge to to push myself to the next level. But you know ultimately for me it's about you know at the moment I mean it's very cliche. You take it day by day and trying to get the most out of what I'm setting out to do that day, and also trying to get the most out of the team that that are around me at work, and and trying to produce as much as positive and good energy as I can to to get the most out of them. That's brilliant,
0: and the last one from us, James. It's one we ask everybody who comes on the show: is what does high performance mean to you?
1: I think high performance is about, you know, I mean, this doesn't sound pretty silly, but performing at the, the highest level possible. So being a, being able to understand how you can get the absolute maximum out of what you have, whether that's in a in a vehicle, in a in, out of your own body in a in a sport in a you know whether it's rugby whether it's sprinting whether it's doing triathlon the high performance is about squeezing every ounce of possible success out of everything that you can give whether as I said whether it's a mechanical something mechanical or something that's inside your body and I think that to me is is what
2: high performance is. James, we're wishing you the very best with your two young girls, your wife settling back into home at your new house in the sunniest part of the world we're a little jealous <laughs> and thanks very much for, for giving us your time we really enjoyed it got an awful lot from it and wishing you the very very best moving forward
1: no worries thank you very much for having me guys cheers James.
0: thanks
2: thank you for listening to today's episode of sleep eat perform repeat a story of high performance this was brought to you by Howora, a whole person well-being company founded and run from dublin ireland find out more at how H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.